to one of the greatest, most influential figures in all of Scripture. Today we meet a young shepherd boy named David, who will ultimately become the greatest king in the history of Israel. And uh, many of us here today are probably very familiar with King David. Young children grow up hearing the amazing stories of David's life. Some of the best artists in history have depicted David in their works. And even Hollywood has produced movies about David's remarkable life. David truly is a special figure, and he plays a prominent role in Scripture. More Scripture is devoted to David than any other biblical figure apart from Jesus Christ. It's very interesting. Abraham and Joseph each have 14 chapters of the Bible dedicated to their lives. Jacob has 11, and Elijah has 10. But David has 66 chapters of the Bible devoted to telling his life story. Not only that, but David is further referenced some 59 times throughout the New Testament. You know, to say that David is a, an important biblical figure is putting it much too lightly. Not only was David a great king of Israel, but he is also responsible for writing many of the Psalms that we enjoy in our Bibles today, some of which are some of the most popularly memorized verses in Scripture. Even more so, many of the songs we sing here on Sunday morning, here in worship, are directly influenced by the writings of King David. And ultimately, friends, David's greatest contribution is the fact that through his lineage would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is called in Scripture the Son of David. See, God had promised David that his kingdom would have no end. And this prophecy was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, who came to establish the eternal kingdom of God. So, you see, friends, as we move through the rest of 1 Samuel this summer, looking at the life of King David, we really are privileged to get a glimpse into the life of one of the most influential figures in all history. And I hope that this sounds exciting to you. And I hope that you'll pay attention as we go through the rest of this series this summer because there really is a lot that we can learn from looking at the life of King David. Now today we're going to pick up our journey through the book of 1 Samuel by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 through 13. And you may recall from recent weeks in our series that we've been looking so far at the life of King Saul. King Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, if you remember the people of Israel, they failed, to heed God's, they failed to heed God's warnings from the prophet Samuel, and they demanded that God give them a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And so God granted their request and gave them their king, Saul. And Saul fit the model the Israelites were looking for. He looked the part of a great king. He was strong, he was tall, he was handsome. But while Saul fit the earthly model of a king, he was lacking in one critical area. He was not faithful in his relationship with the Lord. And so last week we saw in chapter 15 how God ultimately rejected Saul as king and God removed his anointing from him. And this brings us today to chapter 16, 
where we're introduced for the first time to a shepherd boy named David, this amazing individual whom God will anoint as the future king of Israel. Now, if you would, if you got your Bible, open it with me, and let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we have Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and also we're going to show the passage on the screen behind me. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel said, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. But he is tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now, friends, I'd like to make a few observations this morning about this passage that we just read. And these observations are important because later this morning we're going to uh, look at a few implications of this passage for our lives today. And so we first need to get a handle on what's happening here in this passage. And so observation number one this morning is this. When it comes to the kind of person God seeks... God's priorities are not man's priorities. God's priorities are not man's priorities. Here in chapter 16, God has sent Samuel to Bethlehem, looking for the next king of Israel. Now, if you recall from our earlier weeks in this series, Samuel has been in this position before. Back in chapter 9, God gave Samuel the commission to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. But remember, friends, Saul was the king the people wanted. A king patterned after all the other nations around Israel. Chapter 9, verse 2 tells us that Saul was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Saul was the kind of guy 
from our worldly perspective that we would want leading us into battle. He just looked like a great king. And now here's Samuel looking for a replacement, a new king to lead Israel. And sure enough, what does he find here in verse 6? The perfect candidate. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. You see, Eliab, David's oldest brother, was the perfect candidate to be the next king of Israel. Like Saul, Eliab stood out in a crowd. He was the guy people noticed. Tall, strong, handsome, the oldest brother. He was just right. And Samuel assumed that he must be the guy. Except, except, God's priorities are not man's priorities. You see, Samuel was looking for a king that fit the worldly model. But God was choosing a king that fit his model. As soon as Samuel jumped to the conclusion that Eliab must be the guy because he just looks the part, God corrects his false assumption. In verse 7, we read one of the most powerful truths in Scripture. God says to Samuel, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord, he looks at the heart. Now, friends, I find it interesting that even one of God's greatest prophets, Samuel, fell prey to the worldly idea that image is everything. That it's what's on the outside that counts. It's the same lie that so many people in our world continue to buy into even today. In fact, even those of us who are Christians far too often fall for it. Judging others, even judging ourselves based on fleeting external appearances and the world's ever-changing standards. Friends, the truth, though, is this. God is not looking for exceptional people by worldly standards. And we see this truth all throughout Scripture. Outward appearances are irrelevant to God. What God cares most about in his people is what's on the inside. God cares about our hearts, our character, our motivations, and our passions. And these are the things that God desires in the men and women he is seeking. Heart character, passions that are motivated by him and for him. You know how different, friends, God's priorities are from those of the world's. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. Now, observation number two from our passage this morning is this. God saw something in David that nobody else could see. God saw his heart. Verse 7 tells us that the Lord looks at the heart. And God saw in David a heart that pleased him. In fact, in both the Old and New Testaments, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. What an awesome description to be called a man after God's own heart. Friends, we should all aspire for such a title. 
But what was it about David's heart that made him the man God desired to lead Israel? What did this man after God's own heart look like? Well, at this point in the story, all we know about David is that he's a young shepherd boy. Only God knew perfectly who David was and who David would become. Fortunately for us, though, we have the luxury of jumping ahead in Scripture and seeing later in David's life the realities that God already saw here in chapter 16. You know, when we consider the entirety of David's life, there are many things that highlight for us what God meant when he called David a man after his own heart. This morning, though, for the sake of time, let me just quickly draw your attention to four characteristics, four characteristics of David that I believe speak strongly to the idea of what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart. Four characteristics that we see in David. Number one is this. David was humble before the Lord. David was humble before the Lord. In Psalm 16, 2, David writes, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. You see, friends, David recognized that all he was and all he had ultimately came from God. And without God, David knew that his life was empty. David wasn't proud. He wasn't arrogant. He was a man who stood humbly before God. And he acknowledged that apart from God, he had no good thing. Characteristic number two that we see in David's life is this. David was obedient to the Lord. He was obedient to the Lord. In Acts 13.22, the Apostle Paul tells us that God said of David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Wow. What a simple concept. And yet so hard to emulate. David loved God and was willing to do whatever God asked him to do. You see, friends, David lived a life of radical faith. And when God called, David was obedient and he followed. Characteristic number three that we see in David's life, David was contrite in the eyes of the Lord. You know, for all of his praiseworthy characteristics, David wasn't perfect. In fact, later in his life, David would commit adultery. And he would try and cover up his sin by committing murder. However, when the prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin, we see into the true heart of David. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, David says remorsefully, I have sinned against the Lord. Friends, David doesn't deny his responsibility. He doesn't try and deflect blame onto someone else. David grieves and he repents of his sin. In fact, some of David's most powerful psalms come from this period in his life where we see what an honest and contrite heart looks like before the Lord. And lastly, characteristic number four of David is that David was a lover of the word of the Lord. David understood that God's truths in Scripture are where we find direction for our lives. 
And David loved the word of the Lord. This comes out all over in his writings. In Psalm 119.97, for example, David says, Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. In that same chapter, David tells us why he loves God's word. Verse 11, God's word protects him from sin. Verse 50, God's word is his comfort in times of suffering. Verse 165, God's word is where he finds peace of mind. And I could go on and on. David loved the word of God. And he followed it as his guide throughout his life. Friends, as I said a minute ago, these are only four of the many characteristics of why I believe God called David a man after his own heart. But I tell you what, friends, we would all do well to follow even just these four examples from David's life. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. And like David, friends, we don't have to be perfect, but we must be humble and faithful and honest, and we must stay rooted God's word. Now, back to chapter 16. In verses 12 through 13, God tells Samuel and the people of Israel that David is his anointed one, the future king of Israel. Now, you need to remember, friends, at this point in the story, only God sees these characteristics in David that we've just been looking at. Okay? David's friends, his family, even Samuel, none of them knew the man God knew David would become. Here in chapter 16, to David's friends and family, to the rest of Israel, the choice of David, the shepherd boy, it would have made absolutely no sense. And this leads me to observation number three this morning. God has a habit of confounding the wisdom of the world. God has a habit of confounding the wisdom of the world. What the world so often views as being small, insignificant, or even foolish, God has a habit of using for his glory. He does this with people all throughout history. People who the world would write off as being of no use or unworthy of God's high calling are regularly just the very people who God is looking for. We saw a number of examples of people like this in the video we saw earlier today during the offering. We saw an example of this in Kevin and Jill's faith story. I mean, what in the heck are you guys doing getting up FM radio station? I mean, it's foolish. And yet God did it. And we find another example of this in David here in chapter 16. I mean, friends, think about this. David was such an unlikely candidate to be considered the next king of Israel that his own father didn't even bother inviting him to the selection party. I mean, look at that. His own father didn't even bother inviting him. Hey, bring your sons. We're going to anoint the next king of Israel. And David's not even there. He's out tending sheep because he was a nobody. By the world standards, David was about the last guy you'd consider choosing to be the next king of Israel. But again, friends... God sees what the world doesn't see. And he has a habit of confounding the wisdom of the world. Why does God do this? What is it about God so regularly choosing the underdog? 
Well, let's take a look at what the Apostle Paul says about this. It's very interesting. If you have your Bibles, open up with me. Let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 25. Paul gives us an interesting glimpse into why God has a habit of so regularly choosing the underdog. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 and on. Paul says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. What That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul goes on, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. It's very interesting, friends. Paul here gives us three primary reasons why God loves choosing the underdog. In this passage, he says, number one, because God delights in displaying his power in our weakness. Number two, Paul says, because God wants us to boast in him alone. And then number three, God says he loves the underdog because he wants our faith to rest not in our abilities, but in his power. You see, friends, God so regularly chooses the underdog. He has a habit of confounding the wisdom of the world because his goal is to see his name lifted up and his name praised and his name made renowned amongst the peoples of the world. And friends, this isn't selfishness on God's part. It's his right because ultimately everything is about him. All of us are here today because of him and for him. And God wants the people of the world to know very clearly that everything, all of it, is ultimately about Him. And what better way for God to do this than to take what in the world's eyes seems foolish and use it for His glory. And He does this all the time. We see it all throughout Scripture, throughout history, and even right here. At our very own church, God takes what is foolish in the eyes of the world and he uses it so that his name might be lifted high. Isn't that awesome? I think it's awesome. All right, friends, let's bring this home this morning. There's a lot here in this passage that we can apply to our own lives. However, since we're running short on time, let me just briefly highlight a few implications of this passage for us today. Implications of this passage for our lives here today. In fact, I'm going to share five of them real quick with us. And stick with me because I guarantee there's something in here for all of us. 
Implication number one this morning is this. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. So guard your heart and cultivate godly character. Guard your heart and cultivate godly character. Consider David again. He was called a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but his life was predominantly characterized by humility, faithfulness, repentance, and a love for God's word. Friends, let me encourage you. Cultivate these attributes in your life as well. And remember, you don't have to be perfect. Okay? Isn't that great news? You don't have to be perfect. But do you love the Lord? Are you pursuing Him? And when you do fall into temptation, does it break your heart and cause you to come running back to the loving arms of God, our Heavenly Father? Friends, these are the things that God looks for in His people. Cultivate these characteristics in your life. And you'll be a man or woman who pleases God. Implication number two this morning. This is a big one. Friends, know that your identity is ultimately rooted in Jesus Christ. Know that your identity is ultimately rooted in Jesus Christ. You need to understand something here, friends. The world will always judge you by worldly standards. But the world does not define you. Jesus defines you. Get that. The world does not define you. Jesus defines you. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, no matter what the world sees in you, you are special and valuable and loved in the eyes of God. You are a child of God. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's prized possession. And there is nothing that anyone in the world could ever do or say to change your worth in God's eyes. Friends, you need to know that. You need to believe that. Because it's the truth. Implication number three from this passage this morning is this. Let your weaknesses be opportunities for God's power to be manifested through you. Let your weaknesses be opportunities for God's power to be manifested through you. Friends, like so many people that God has used throughout history, you don't have to be perfect. You just need to be willing. Just need to be willing. God loves using the underdog for his glory. You may not fit the world's model, but God doesn't work by the world's model. God has a habit of confounding the wisdom of the world. My grandfather stuttered for the first 20 years of his life. When he was in college, God called him to be a preacher. At the time, he could barely get through a sentence. But God confounded the wisdom of this world. And God cured him of his stuttering disability. And my grandfather went on to be a preacher for 60 years, preaching every Sunday, ministering to people all over the world. Many of us know our friend here at church, Al Zaria, Justin's father. If you know Al, Al's teaching this morning in our summer ABF series. Al is legally blind, yet God has chosen to display his power through Al's weakness. In spite of his blindness, Al has gone to seminary. He's a regular teacher here in our church. And this past year, God called Al to go to Liberia, Africa, to train pastors in studying God's word. Friends, I'll tell you something. That's an adventure if you can see perfectly. And yet God chose Al. And Al was willing, 
And God is using him today in powerful ways. In fact, he's been invited back to Africa to train more pastors. You know, I could go on and on this morning sharing stories like this of God manifesting his power through our weakness. Friends, don't ever believe that God can't use you. You don't have to be perfect. You just need to be willing. Implication number four is this. Let your strengths point others to Jesus and give him the glory. Now, friends, some of you have been richly blessed. Some of you have been blessed with talent, ability, popularity, wealth. And I'll tell you something, friends, you don't have to apologize for that. God's blessings are nothing to be ashamed of. But remember, like David, all we are and all we have are ultimately for God's glory, not for ours. One of my current sports heroes is a guy by the name of Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow was recently drafted in the first round by the Denver Broncos. For those of you familiar with football, you know that Tebow is arguably one of the greatest college football players in history. The guy is an awesome athlete. But what I've appreciated most about Tebow is his bold faith. You see, Tebow is known as much for his testimony and his witness for Jesus Christ as he is for his football. He's a guy who's chosen to use his strengths for God's glory and not his own. And friends, all of us can do the same thing in our own sphere of influence. How has God blessed you? What gift or talent has God given you? Take your gift and find a way to use it for God's glory. And I guarantee you, you'll have a blast doing it. Because here's the deal. There is nothing greater than when you get to see your gifts and talents and abilities being used for the glory of the Lord. In fact, that's why God gave them to you. And I promise you this, you will never be truly fulfilled in those gifts and talents and abilities until you see them put to use for God's glory. Because that's why you have them. They're ultimately for God, for Him and His glory. Lastly today, and most importantly, implication number five is this. Get your heart right. Get your heart right. Friends, before you cultivate godly character, before you can understand your true identity, before God can fully use you for his glory, you must first make sure that your heart is right in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, all of us, all of us here today are sinners. And our sin keeps us from a relationship with God. And our sin ultimately leads to death and to an eternity separated from God. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is this. Romans 6.23 tells us, While the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has provided a way for us to be saved from our sins. And that way is Jesus Christ. John 3.16, that most popular verse in Scripture, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Friends, in 1 John 1.9, the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do you know with confidence this morning that your heart is right with the Lord? 
Do you have the assurance that your sins have been forgiven? If not, you can. You can have that confidence, that assurance, right here today. It's a simple matter of calling out to Jesus, confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, which simply means turning from it, turning from your sin to follow Christ, and believing in Him that through His death on the cross, we can be forgiven. Through His resurrection, we have the promise of new life. Confess, repent, and believe. Friends, God looks at the heart. And God is looking for men and women after His own heart. And the first and most important step in becoming that man or woman of God is giving your heart fully to Him. And if you haven't done that yet, my friend, my hope and my prayer is that you will. And what better time than right here this morning? Why not leave here this morning knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful passage from 1 Samuel where you chose David and the many lessons that we can learn from this. How you do not look at the outward appearance, but you look at the heart. How our identities are not rooted in what the world sees in us, but ultimately in what you see in us. How you can use our strengths for your glory and how you can use our weaknesses and transform them and your power be manifested through them. Heavenly Father, you are so powerful and awesome and it's just amazing to see the way you work through our human weakness, how you so regularly confound the wisdom of the world. Heavenly Father, I pray especially this morning that all of us here might be seeking to honor you and please you with all of our lives. That when you look at us, Father, you might say of us like you say of David, there is a man, there is a woman after my own heart. Help us to strive to seek those things in our own lives, Lord, that bring honor and glory to you, that please you. And Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know for sure that their heart is right in the eyes of the Lord, they maybe have never made that profession of faith, confessing their sins and believing that you, Lord Jesus, are the one who can save us. I pray that that person, even this morning, might, in the quiet of their own heart, right here, right now, might just say a simple prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me and that through him I can be forgiven and receive eternal life. And I want to live and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Again, God knows your heart, friends. Your words don't have to be perfect. But if you call out to him, God will hear you. You know, cleanse you of all your sins and make you a new creation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how you use us in our frailties and our weaknesses and our doubts, how you use us for your glory. What a privilege that is. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.